Nobody thought Trump would win. Trump has always benefited from the inability to imagine Trump. You know, all those 15 candidates running against Trump, all they wanted to do was get one-on-one with Trump. Because, I mean, give me a break. The party wasn't going to nominate a failed casino owner who talked in public about having sex with his daughter. (laughs) That wasn't going to happen. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Welcome, everyone, to The Head and the Heart. This is Perry Rogers. And this is Ed Borgato. Remember that our show is available on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. So, Ed, today we have Stuart Stevens, who is a political consultant uh, and the writer of the book, It Was All a Lie. This is a guy who was at the top of the Republican Party. Uh, He was the campaign manager for uh, Mitt Romney. He worked for Thad Cochran. He worked for George W. Bush. He worked for Bob Dole. Uh, He worked for John McCain. So he is a true Republican insider and has written this book that really kind of reveals what the process was like for him to watch these values that he has held so dearly. And that he knows that um, Republicans who are true conservatives have held dearly and to watch so many that were in the Republican Party or identified with the Republican Party to abandon those principles and what that's meant for him. Yeah, I'm really excited to speak to Stuart. His book is super interesting, and he's a triple smart guy. And like you said, he's he's a real insider. And so, you know, getting his perspective um, from you know his particular perch is interesting. Yeah, you and I have talked about him because you know uh, he's a member of the Lincoln Project, and they may be doing the best advertising out there, um, which is really designed to shake people from their their thinking or at least the cadence of their thinking. And that kind of got me thinking, you know, Ed, years ago when we started to talk about political thinking, you did something that really impressed me and amazed me. I love to look at brands and how brands think about their values and their mission statement and their core principles. And you applied that to voting. And I was hoping you would talk a little bit about what got you to do that and what your core values are? Uh, well, I think you're referring to me telling you about sort of the two core pillars that through which I look at every issue, political issue or polit- political candidate through. And um, the two things are, number one, personal and economic liberty and whether or not the idea or policy expands or contracts personal economic liberty. And number two, uh, whether or not the idea I'm looking at uh, will advance or preserve the U.S. dollar standard, the global U.S. dollar standard. You know, our ability to control and create the global reserve currency is an enormous advantage that the United States uh, holds that I think the average person doesn't realize how powerful that is. You know, the ability to issue debt in your own currency, of which you have the power to create more of, is just a colossal advantage. And it's allowed the United States to to operate in the world to do things that really is just unmatched. And so those two things are very important to me. So when I look at ideas, policy, I look at it through that, those, that lens. I, I want to understand whether or not those things are being advanced or if, if they're taking away from that. And, you know, and it's very nuanced because what does that mean to support the U.S. dollar standard? It means that, you know, I want to see that a policy or a politician or a, a, a governing philosophy strengthens our institutions, preserves the integrity of our institutions, uh, particularly in the justice and judicial systems. And I want to see a foreign policy that is pragmatic and morally aware. You know, I think that the United States is an aspirational country, and that's one of the reasons people gravitate to the United States. My family immigrated here. I, I was born in Brazil and came as a child. 
And I've always viewed the United States as this aspirational place. I think most people do. Preserving that U.S. dollar standard is crucial. And then secondly, you know, the personal and economic liberty. Um, I mean, that's the essence, I think, of what the pursuit of happiness in the founding document is all about. You know, so I, I ask myself the question, you know, when, I, when, when ideas are, are presented, you know, is this advancing personal liberty or, or is, it, is it taking away from that? And so I, I look everything through that lens, irrespective of which party or politician is trying to advance the particular idea. But this has allowed you, um, and we share this, uh, this has allowed you to vote for presidential candidates who are Republican and Democrats. You haven't been aligned your entire life with uh, one specific party because you're, you're processing this through th- those lenses of those two issues. Yeah, that's right. I've, I've, I personally um, self-identify as an independent, and I have voted that way. I've, I've voted for candidates of both parties ever since I started voting at 18. I will say that I grew up, like you did, in the time of Reagan. And I would say that I was sympathetic in my teen years and early 20s to um, so much of the optimism and pro-market, pro-business um, uh, philosophies of the Reagan Republican Party. Um, but as I, you know, sort of, you know, matured and began to, you know, operate in the world as a business person and and, and grew up, I mean, I, I never found myself really comfortable living in one party or the other. And even at that time, from the first time I registered at 18, I was an independent. Yeah, I mean, look, um, when you started to walk me through that, I I then went back and did my own thinking on, well, what is it that I would say are are my filters? And, you know, the two core principles for me were, um, one is the First Amendment. You know, my faith is really important to me, and I want the freedom to practice that. And I want everyone to have the freedom to practice their own faith want everyone to have the freedom to gather and protest. Uh, and I want the freedom of the press to always hold those accountable. So that was the first is what are, what am I going to see about people upholding the first amendment? And, and that got me going down the rabbit hole of what the first amendment means, what free speech actually means uh, something that I'm sure that we'll talk about. Um, and then the other thing for me was inclusion, you know, I'm um, a big believer that government is simply an organizing principle, and we're trying to figure out how to manage our way through this thing called life and how we're going to function inside of it. And, um, you know, I want to make sure that given that we're trying to figure it out, that we have the most people possible pulling a chair up to the table of solutions to help us in that, you know, no matter who you are, you've been touched by cancer. Someone that you know has had it or you've had it. And um, I don't know who's going to solve cancer. I have no idea. So I want everyone to have a chance to solve cancer for all of our benefits. And so when it comes to inclusion, um, I really can't get my head around someone who doesn't advance the idea of of inclusion because it really is saying, let's slow down the opportunity and process for solutions of problems that we all face. So those became mine, but I, I, I'm not sure I would have thought of it so clearly if I didn't feel really challenged by the way that you approach it. And I appreciated that. Well, I, you know, when you talk about inclusion, it reminds me of an experience I had several years ago that you know about. Um, I had the opportunity to live and work um, in uh, East Africa, Northern Tanzania to be specific and travel through the Middle East and one of the things and, and parts of Kenya and spending so much time in that part of the world, um, one of the things that, of course, becomes readily apparent if you're a curious person looking around and trying to learn about the culture, which I was. And incidentally, I was you know, teaching at a school in Tanzania, is that you know, they're not educating their girls, in the same way that we do in the West. The, the focus isn't that. A lot of the girls are married off at a young age or them being educated is just not valued in the same way culturally. And it's just hard not to escape the fact that those 
societies, those countries are held back by the fact that they're not developing half of their intellectual horsepower. It's going to waste. And so when you talk about inclusion, it reminds me of that experience because it just makes absolutely no sense to exclude anybody. There's really, there's not a person that can go to waste if you really want to solve big problems because you don't know, you don't know who is going to emerge, who has the innate talent, who simply has the deep curiosity about a subject matter that makes them the one that, to your example, is the one that cures cancer. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, it is interesting when you think about all the issues that we faced this summer around inclusion and exclusion and the systemic racism that exists and you know what's what's amazing is that we can't align more people on the side of well but if we include more people we have a better chance to solve problems i mean if you said well the only people that can be scientists are people that have blue eyes or the only people that can be doctors are people that have brown eyes you will have slowed down your ability to heal people and solve problems because you'll have less people in the pool. It's no, it's no different than that. Yeah, well, we're going to get into a little bit of this, this inclusion topic with Stuart today because in his book, he speaks specifically to um, the tactic coming from Republicans, as, as he sees it, of rather than trying to develop ideas that include everyone, they've taken a path in some instances to try to exclude people from the democratic process by getting them not to vote or finding making it difficult for them to vote as, 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 a, as a way to win. And of course, that's his view. And I know he, he has it um, because he talks about it in the book. So I think we're going to sort of t- try to tackle some of this inclusion question. And he's someone that has, has, you know, sort of his, his, his own sort of journey of consciousness to kind of move away from something that was such a big part of his identity and to now hold, you know, different views and to kind of see it for what it was and his part in it. I mean, it's really a fascinating um, take. I, I, I'm looking forward to speaking to him. Well, he's also one of the members of the Lincoln Project, and there's rarely a day that goes by where you or I are not sending something back and forth from the Lincoln Project. Yeah. Th- those ads are really – you should make anyone who makes political ads want to retire because I – just on a daily basis, it's one ad after another that's just amazing. Uh, they're doing an incredible job. So, again, this is The Head and the Heart. Uh, we hope you'll subscribe to the show with new episodes every week. And our guest is Stuart Stevens. Stuart, uh, welcome to the program. Thank uh, you for having me. For those listeners that uh, that don't know, Stuart's uh, from Mississippi and has been in politics uh, all of his professional life, uh, from Thad Cochran's campaigns to Bob Dole's to George W. Bush to Mitt Romney's and, and obviously John McCain's as well. And he has a book uh, called uh, It Was All a Lie. And I kind of want to start with you at the end of your beginning, the end of the first chapter, this is what you write. How do you abandon deeply held beliefs about character, personal responsibility, foreign policy, and the national debt in a matter of months? You don't. The obvious answer is those beliefs weren't deeply held. In the end, the Republican Party rallied behind Donald Trump because if that was the deal needed to regain power, what was the problem? Because it had always been about power. The rest, the principles, the values, it was all a lie. So when I read that, it's a thump on the head at the end of your first chapter. Because, you know, this is how you had spent your life's work. And I'm wondering two things. One, um, what was it like to come to that conclusion? And two, do you think that you would have to be as much of an insider as you were to get to that conclusion? Or do you think that there are more people out there that can be peeled off and can come to that conclusion? Well, on the latter, I I think we have data that shows that this happening. I mean, the Republican party is definitely getting smaller, you know, um, increasingly the largest group of voters in the country are independents and they lean Democrat or lean Republican. 
in a lot of states, you don't have party registration. In Mississippi, we never had party registration. We always said, you know, famously, party was a state of mind. Um, so if you just look in the last six months, the Republican Party, those self-identified, as it's called, Republicans, uh, they shrunk. So, yeah. I, I, now, whether or not they feel that that is reaction to Trump, uh, there's a lot of split on this. You know, did Trump hijack the party? Did Trump betray the party? Did Trump, you know, that's really what I wrestled with. Um, I mean, if it goes, it goes back to 2016, I mean, a lot of people are wrong about Trump <laughs> to find anybody who was more wrong than I was. You know, I famously said he wasn't going to win a primary. Now, in part, I said that to be provocative, but there was also a part of me that just didn't want to believe it. And the same in the general. I, I thought he'd lose the general. Um, and then once he won, I kind of went through this period, like a lot of people that I know. Um, he's not really the Republican Party. Um, but, man, I just don't know how you sustain that. Um, I mean, he's head of the Republican Party, and of those who are left in the Republican Party, he's very popular. So Republican Party is the party that endorses Roy Moore and attacks John Bolton. <laughs> That's the party. I don't know how. You could say, I wish it wasn't the party. You could say it's not the party I joined. But you can't say it's not the party. At least I can't. Um, so it really led me to this question of, like, how did this happen? Um, and that led me to write the book. Um, and, you know, like a lot of things in life, the book started as just sort of a personal quest of me trying to understand this better. And, you know, Republican Party is not an obscure subject. There's a lot of very, very, very interesting books written about it, data on it. Uh, so um, I just started at the beginning, really, the post-World War II Republican Party and tried to see how we got to where we got. So just going back to the beginning a little bit, we're not all the way back to the beginning, but it's sort of the beginning of the Trump um, ascendancy. I've always been curious, you know, I lived in New York for in the late eighties and most of the nineties, most of the two thousands. And, you know, so, and I was one removed from Donald Trump and I knew people who did business with him, you know, to New Yorkers, he was always sort of like, you know, this harmless PT Barnum business figure, you know, he had sort of, you know, shown his, his, his snarl a little bit around the central park five issue when New York was upside down because of the central park jogger, you know, but he was, you know, mostly this cartoon character of a rich guy and, and not viewed very seriously. I'm curious as to what was going on in the Republican party in 2011, 2012, um, around the time of the primaries when you were working with, with Mitt Romney, it seemed that there was always, you know, there was this parade of, of, of Republican candidates who would go up to Trump tower and sort of, you know, to kiss the ring, to get the blessing. Um, everyone felt as if, you know, they needed the endorsement of Donald Trump. You know, I always thought that was so curious. And I was wondering if you just like could yeah, so, talk about that time. You know, um, People forget or they didn't know because God love them, they have a life. Um, in the 2011-2012 primary season, Republican primary season, Donald Trump was supposed to moderate a debate. And, and so, you know, Mitt Romney is, was as close to, like, you know, Mitt Romney would get, like, you know, are you freaking kidding me? You know, uh, three days after Christmas, we were debating all the time. There were 19 primary debates. Like, every few minutes we had a debate. And it's like after Christmas and it's Donald Trump. Like, I'm not doing this, you know. I mean, it's ridiculous. So it came to me, to fell to me to kill the thing. So I had conversations with Trump. And it was really fascinating because, like, he kept saying, you know, we'll get great numbers. And I was like, we probably will. But, you know, we don't have, like, a name ID problem. And he, he really sort of couldn't get it. And then finally, I talked to this guy, Chris Rude, Rudy, who was head of Newsmax. And he was like, very matter of fact, you know, if you don't do it then in Florida, and they're kind of a big deal in Florida, we're going to endorse New Cambridge and attack Mitt. And I was like, Chris, everybody's going to do what they're going to do, but dude, we're not doing this debate. And that's what happened. And they, attack, they uh, attacked Mitt and endorsed Cambridge, and Mitt won the Florida primary overwhelmingly. So then we roll into the Nevada primary. Um, it's really a caucus. You know, 
we had this pattern that we would get endorsed by business people, small business, a lot of them, some big, every day. You'd wake up, you'd go get some endorsements. And Donald Trump, to us, I mean, it's probably really naive, uh, and I blame myself. We didn't look at it as a big deal. It was like 10 minutes for us. Donald Trump wanted to endorse us. Okay. You know, if you look, I remember seeing some uh, kind of like alternative newspaper type in uh, Las Vegas where they list places to work, you know. And he was like, people like to work there. It wasn't like a sweatshop. It was like, okay. So we don't want to spend much time with this. So, I mean, we literally, I think it was a half hour on the schedule total, and they were together 10 minutes. Then I started getting these calls, uh, like from Michael Cohen. Well, you know, Mr. Trump's cleared his schedule and he'll go on the plane. (laughs) Michael, that's not going to happen. And what was interesting is they literally couldn't get in their heads. Like, you know, they thought we're saying that because we didn't want to inconvenience Trump. They go, no, no, he really doesn't mind. And then finally Trump called me. He's going, look, it's okay. I don't mind doing this. It's like, we're not doing this. It's not good for you. It's not good for us. It's just not going to happen. And they were, it was sort of like literally perplexed. Like, you don't want me? Yeah. Well, the other thing is they didn't get mad about it. It was just sort of unfathomable to them. And then we were in the nomination, and then it's like, well, what night am I going to speak at the convention? And I had this whole thing again. You're not going to speak at the convention. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And what's interesting is, you know, he never lost it over it. He never attacked me publicly. I think it's one of the reasons, like, back when he was going running for president, he kept, like, attacking me it was just very weird so we didn't see it as any big deal i don't i don't think it's true that mitt romney legitimized donald trump i think had he traveled around with us and done all this stuff i think if we had it to do over it was a mistake shouldn't have done it but you know man you're getting these things you're just kind of rolling from one primary to another you can't really like about everybody who's going to endorse you it's right you take the support where you can get I mean, it. It was just, you know, I mean, we're just trying to get through the day. Then when, when Trump announced, uh, to me, the, the real turning point here, you know, if I was like writing a script about this, like Chernobyl, you know, the decision to like, you know, do the nuclear test was in December of 2015 when Trump came out for a Muslim ban. And that's when the part, which is a religious test, I always would think about, remember the old cat, the folk singer Cat Stevens who said he's a Muslim, you know, yeah. the English folk singer. I was like, what if Cat Stevens shows up at Heathrow and goes, you know, dude, I'm actually, I'm not a Muslim anymore. I'm a Quaker. Hmm. Well, what are you going to do? Like ask him trivia questions about <laughs> William Penn? I, I, like, it's a religious test. So if anything, the Republicans are supposed to be for the Constitution. And the party just went along with it. And what should have happened is, if you remember, uh, this, uh, like October or September 2012, there was this guy who was a Republican nominee for Senate Missouri. Todd Aiken was his name, who said these horrible things about women and rape, like legitimate rape or something. I can't forget. Kellyanne Conway was working for him. No surprise. Um, but, um, you know, the Republican rights previous to his credit, you know, said, look, we can't stop people from voting for this guy. There's no mechanism to take him off the ballot as Republican. But the Republican Party is not supporting this guy. Yeah. And it cost him a Senate seat. Okay. <laughs> we were against rape. And that's what should have happened with Donald Trump, right? Should have gone out and said, look, we're not going to support this guy. We can't stop you from voting for him. But the Republican Party is not going to support anybody who's for a religious test. Right. But he did. And I know why. Nobody thought Trump would win. Trump has always benefited from the inability to imagine Trump. You know, all those 15 candidates running against Trump, all they wanted to do was get one-on-one with Trump. Because, I mean, give me a break. The party wasn't going to nominate a failed casino owner who talked in public about having sex with his daughter. It was a maxed-out donor to Anthony Weiner. <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. Yeah, I like, I, I like the way you phrase that a lot. Donald Trump has always benefited from the inability to imagine him winning. And I think you, you've said that, you know, in the, in, the, in the primaries in 2016, you know, the rest of the candidates sort of were just trying to figure out, you know, we're going to kill each other off. And because yeah. whoever's the last man standing with Trump's going to get the nomination Obviously. or as the case may be, because no one could imagine he could win. Yeah. But you, you mentioned ranks, ranks, present, uh, previous. And it, it brings me to another question I had about the, the autopsy that yeah. would have 
conducted, you know, after the 2012 campaign um, when Barack Obama was reelected. You know, Reince Priebus would have been, you know, the, was chairman of the, of, of the Republican Party then, and, and an autopsy on that election was done. What were, you know, talk, what, what were the conclusions? What were the sort of big... I think Reince deserves a lot of credit for that. It's always hard for organizations to be self-critical. But what's interesting, I mean, electorally, it was pretty obvious, right? You had to expand to more of a non-white vote, voting base. You had to appeal more to younger voters. You had to appeal more to women, particularly... Uh, women working outside the home, particularly single women. It wasn't brain surgery, but it's important to stay. But what's fascinating is it was presented not only as an electoral necessity, but it was a moral mandate that if you were going to earn the right to govern this country, this big, confusing, cacophonous, uh, contradictory country, you had to be represented more. Um, and then Trump came along. And it was almost like this audible sigh of relief, like, thank God, we don't have to pretend we care about this stuff. We can just be like the way we were. Like, we'll get a bunch of white people together and we'll elect the president. And, I mean, it was just so clearly exposed it as a fraud. Nobody really didn't believe that this was necessary. It was just sort of pretending that this is something we need to say. Um, In your I mean, book. That's In why I kept it, it was all a lie. In, in your book, you really talk a lot about kind of the history of race and how that is the central theme for today's Republican Party, whether it's oppressing the vote or ginning up their base uh, both ways. You know, as you, you also cite the statistics about where the country is going. Yeah. How does this play out as you oh, see yeah, it? Plays out. It plays out like it did in California. You know, Republican Party in California not very long ago, it was the the heart and soul of the Republican Party was California. It was the electoral citadel. Every electoral college victory was based on California. And now the party's in third place, not second, third, to independence. That's what's going to happen. Now, it's kind of like the subprime mortgage crisis. It's easier to say how it ends up than how long it takes. It may take longer than we think. I mean, a stat that I didn't have when I wrote this book that I came across recently, that I, I, I mean, it literally blew my mind. Of Americans 15 years and under, the majority are non-white. Wow. So, I mean, the odds are really, really good. They're going to turn 18 and still be non-white. And what is that going to mean for the Republican Party? It's a death sentence. Let me ask you this. I'm really curious. You know, there's that short story, Flowers for Algernon, mm -hmm. where um, he realizes he, he is slow. He has a surgery, makes him the smartest person on the planet. And he realizes that the effects and benefits of the surgery are temporary. He's trying to fix the, the, the short-term uh, um, benefit that he's getting from the surgery before his intelligence goes away. He's in a race with himself, and he's not able to do it. I don't want to put too much on this, but is that what's really at stake in this election? In other words, if the Republican Party realizes Oof, there's a death that's in front of us, but if we gain power or we, we maintain power uh, in this election, um, we can do some things that will continue to oppress the vote. And we'll figure that out over the next four years. Would you say that's on the ballot or is, is that too much? Oh, I think that's going to happen whether or not Trump wins or not. Look, I, I tell you a little something I think is incredibly telling. Um, and maybe it means more to somebody like myself that works in politics, but so there's this other Republican Party, uh, these Republican governors, right? So, like in the Northeast, where I am in Vermont, Phil Scott, Republican governor, Charlie Baker, Massachusetts, Larry Hogan in Maryland. I work for all these guys, right? They're all wildly popular in the toughest states you can have. So if the Republican Party had any sense, they'd be looking at these guys. We really thought we wanted to run things like a business. Like, they're selling our product in the toughest market, and they're selling the hell out of it. Like, teach us, teach us, teach us, you know? I mean, they'd be the leaders of the party. They're sort of treated with benign neglect at best. But here's the really telling thing. None of these governors can pick their own state party chairman. They're Trump people. I mean, in that, in politics, I mean, that's like saying you're a baseball manager, you can't pick your pitcher. You're a governor, you can't pick your own state party. I mean, I, I mean it's like unimaginable. But they can't. They can't control their own state parties. And that just shows how deeply uh, this Trumpism is in the party. And there's no, I mean, look, I wrote a pretty bleak book about the Republican Party, right, a year ago, I finished it. Man, I think I was overly optimistic. 
I never would have thought that they'd have a Republican uh, convention and not even pretend not to have a platform. They would just put on paper that basically it's a fear oath that we're for whatever Trump's for. I mean, to, to, to like put that in paper. When I, when I heard that the other morning, um, I thought it was just sort of like an internet thing coming from yeah. the political left, you yeah. know, accusing the party of not having a platform. I, I thought it, you know, I didn't want to repeat it to anyone without independently verifying it. And when I read their letter, I, I was really stunned. That's and stunned. I, and, and if I was part of an organization like this, I just, I don't know how I could escape the embarrassment because it really was a document that, that said nothing other than what Trump, Trump wants, we want. I mean, I, you know, I think we're in for this period, inevitably, of sooner or less government for a good while in America, if only because there is no coherent conservative platform of government, policy mm-hmm. of government. We've basically formalized it now with this, this lack of a platform. But I don't know anybody in the Republican Party with any credibility, can say, okay, this is what conservatism is. Let me tell you. Right. You be able to do that. Now, Elizabeth Warren, she'll tell you what she thinks is her theory of government. You can argue with her. You can think she's brilliant. You can think she's an idiot. But she'll argue with you well. And it's coherent. Right. She has a good – she can put forward a governing philosophy. Governing you philosophy. can disagree with it, and you can think she's off a rocker. But she's got ideas. She's got something to say. And, you know, I'm a persuadable voter. And so when I see something like the one of the two major parties that I'm locked into doesn't even have a platform of ideas, I, I, I'm thinking, well, what's the governing philosophy? You know, it's just another shattering of the power. Norm. It's just power. So, you know, this is why I call the Republican Party a cartel. It's not a political party. A political party is a, a light group of people who are joined together by some uh, agreed upon basic coherent uh, theory of government. Right. That's not what the Republican Party is. Right. The Republican Party exists to be Democrats. So nobody asks OPEC, like, well, what's the higher moral good? Like, we sell oil. If you're like right. a narco cartel, what do you do? We sell dope. You know, it's not like that's the greater purpose here. Same with the Republican Party. It exists. Well, right. it, it, an organization needs to have a reason to exist. They're, the reason it exists is to elect Republicans and to beat Democrats. You have this great section, and if you don't mind, I'm going to read part of this because I just think this is such great writing. You say it's not just that no one knows anything about the subject of conservatism. They don't remotely care. All Republicans want to do is beat the team playing the Giants. They aren't voters using active intelligence or participants in a civil democracy. They're fans. Their role is to cheer and fund their team and trash talk whatever team is on the other side. This removes any of the seeming contradiction of having spent years supporting principles like free trade and personal responsibility to suddenly stop and support the opposite. Think of those principles like players on a team. You cheered for them when they were on your team, but then management fired them or traded them to another team. So of course you aren't for them anymore. If your team suddenly decides to focus on running instead of passing, no fan cares as long as a team wins. And here's really the point, you know, and Ed and I have talked about this at length, you know, voters aren't fans. They, they have made themselves fans, but voters should be general managers. Yes. Voters should be deciding, well, what are your principles? Let you me look. Me. Yeah. Let me look at it. You work for me. Let me look at it and I'll decide. But, you know, when you're a, a fan, if you go into a car dealership and you say, listen, I want you to know I'm buying the car. I'm telling you right now, I'm buying the car. There's nothing you can do that doesn't get me to buy this car. You will not be getting a deal. I promise you. That's really what, what we have, isn't it? It's people that have, it, it's uh, too much of the electorate has decided to be a fan. What I don't understand is most politicians have pretty big egos, right? Which doesn't bother me. I mean, great athletes, musicians, artists have big egos. But why they don't see how they're going to be remembered, these Republicans. And I don't mean 20 years from now. I mean, like two years from now. Right. Now, I, I go back to George Washington. George Wallace, actually, I grew up in Mississippi. He actually did some good stuff as governor. He passed free textbooks. Nobody's remembered as the free textbook George Wallace guy. You were the George Wallace guy. And that's how it is with Trump. I mean, I'm pretty sure Mitch McConnell thinks Trump is going to be remembered as his fool. I think the odds are a lot better. Mitch McConnell's going to be remembered as Trump's fool. And all of the stuff that they said that they cared about, this is total nonsense. I mean, how do you say that you care about the rule of law when a guy announces for re-election breaking the law? It's a farce. Yeah, we don't care, and 
I don't get it, you know. I mean, I know all these people. They're good people. They live next door to you. They'd be good neighbors. They saw you standing on the road. They'd help you. But they're just weak. Yeah, I mean, last, you, 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 <laughs> you, I think you're referencing last night. And just so audience knows, we're, we're, we're recording this the, the morning after uh, the final night of the Republican convention, where there was essentially a Trump rally held on the South Lawn of the White House. And oh, I, it was a Trump rally. Yeah, it was a Trump rally. And I think I think it just sort of shocks the conscience of people who really care about this country. It doesn't matter what party you're in or, or what, what your your point of view is. I, 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 it was really a, a strange thing to behold if, if you've been paying look, any attention. The degree – it's not like it never occurred to a president that you had the greatest set in the world and we could use this. It wasn't like Trump was the first like, hey, man, yeah. who was that? But, you know, I, I shot in the White House a bunch, you know, for, for President Bush. And the extremes that we went to not to violate law. Right. I mean, it was an immense pain in the ass. You'd only shoot in the residence. You couldn't use the White House staff for anything. They, you couldn't get a Coke right. from the White House staff, literally. Yeah. I mean, it, it had to be as if you were going into someone's house. Because the residence was their house. And that's allowed. But that's it. You couldn't get staff to help you carry in equipment. I mean, it was just straight. And the idea that Trump is up there doing this, I mean, everybody says a hatch act doesn't mean anything. I don't know. I sure hope, you know, I hope Biden wins, and I hope the next attorney general goes after this uh, with just scorched earth. And Mark Meadows should be investigated, all those people. Yeah. I mean, it is criminal, and there are penalties for it, because it is stealing. All you're doing is taking taxpayer dollars and putting on a Trump rally. It's no different than they took your Social Security check, they deposited it into a Trump account, and then put on a rally. Yeah, That's really what they're doing. They're people who have worked their entire lives to pay taxes just for the amount of money that was stolen and putting on what happened last night. It's just theft. Right. It's not fancy. It's not technical. It's not victimless. And the worst part, and it's brazen. It's right in your face. He's basically saying, you can't touch me. You can't do anything about this. I This morning, your colleague at the Lincoln Project, Steve Schmidt, who has really the most incredible way with words, um, he tweeted that ca- calling what happened last night at the White House a desecration. Um, and he, he goes on to say, it was an exposition of lawlessness where the powerful symbols of state that belonged to all of us were profoundly abused in the name of Trump's personal vanity and political narcissism. And quote, in essence, he, he, he was saying, meaning Trump, I am the truth. I am the law. I am the state. It's true. And, and look, what Trump does is, you know, he senses weakness. He has this sort of mobster ability to see, feel who will pay protection. And what the Republican Party basically is doing is paying protection to the Trump gang. So uh, he's, he's tested them now, and he's pretty much proven that there's nothing he can do that they will object to. So, look, I'm the most anti-conspiracy person in the world when it comes to elections. I mean, you do this stuff, you realize it's kind of how boring and mundane it is. I mean, is there voter fraud? I mean, there's, is, sure. Is there elephantitis in America? Yeah. But is there a reason there's a National Cancer Society and not an elephantitis society? Yeah, it's a lot bigger right. problem. But... I think this next period between now and the election is the most dangerous period in American electoral history since the Civil War. Trump's not going to ask permission to do this stuff. Trump's just going to do it and say, stop it. And I think that it's not only the inability to imagine Trump winning that has benefited Trump. It's the inability to imagine Trump. And normal people always assume that people who are acting abnormally will revert to normalcy. They'll come to their senses, just given time. Trump's not a normal person, and he's always used this to his advantage. He'll just go further while he demands that you adhere to a norm. He's a gangster. Well, the way it works with people like this, and I, I've unfortunately <laughs> encountered them in, in the business world, is that you know someone who is inherently dishonest, uh, uh, either intentionally corrupt or at least you know inclined to cut corners, they have a way of getting you to go along on something minor, something small. Like, yeah, ah, this is no big deal. And you look the other way. And then what you do is then they come back and it's one more thing. And you, you, people who never thought they'd get caught 
end up getting falling very deep with someone who's the wrong person. And the psychology is, is, is really fascinating. I, I have a, I have a friend, I have a number of friends who are Trump supporters and and a number of, and I have a number of disaffected conservative friends. Um, But I asked one of them, I said, is there anything that you'll hold him accountable for? I mean, it seems as if, you know, you're, you're so far in, he's, you no longer insist that, that, that he meets some standard for you. I mean, what, what is the thing where you would hold him accountable? I, I mean, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this. I, I, the guy actually said to me, he said, pedophilia. If I found out that he was a pedophile, you know. Almost like a Saturday Night Live test. What would it take Republicans to support a moderate Democrat? Well, what if he was a child molester? Well, what do we have? Roy Moore, an alleged right. child molester. Not a problem. Yeah. Not a problem. Right. 67% of, of white uh, Alabamians supported uh, Roy Moore. I, I, I don't know where the line is. And yeah, there's no question the Russians helped Trump. I mean, that's just a fact. Even the Rubio report admits that. Yeah. Um, they don't seem to care. Well, the Senate the Intelligence Committee findings that were released, what, a week ago or 10 days ago, I mean, in any other world, that would be a political earthquake, like yeah. the equivalent of California falling into the ocean. You have to have a party. You have to have a party that'll do it. Um, and then the Republican Party, parties should form a circuit breaker function in our society. Yeah. And the Republican Party didn't pull the circuit breaker. So if you would, talk a little bit about the Lincoln Project and the impact you think that's having on those people that can yeah. be killed off. Um, well, look, I mean, the Lincoln Project was really, you know, the brainchild of uh, John Weaver, who had worked for John McCain. And, but it's, really, it's just a group of us that we've worked in campaigns, uh, Republican campaigns, that are appalled by what's happening. We have certain skills, um, and we kind of have three choices, I guess. I mean, we could be for Trump, like, well, that wasn't going to happen. We could sit it out, which kind of sucks. Um, or we could try to take the skills we have to beat Trump. So that's really all it is. Um, I mean, we're good at some stuff. And uh, we don't confuse it with any kind of personal nobility. I mean, Trump comes out and they attack us. It's like, are you kidding, dude? Like, we wouldn't vote for ourselves. We're political consultants. He crazy. I mean, like, what yeah, are the, what are the greatest tweets from the Lincoln Project? And I know. There's been many. Was the morning after Michelle Obama's um, convention speech because she had repeated her line from years ago: "When they go low, we go high." And the Lincoln Project tweeted: "We go low, so you don't have to." Well, one I've discovered is it's very liberating not to have a client. Because when you have a client, you legitimately have to worry that if you go too far, it'll backfire on the client. Yeah. And you also, you can't make an attack in politics if your candidate won't back it up. So you go out and you say, you know, I think so-and-so is a liar. And then the candidate gets asked, well, do you think so-and-so is a liar? They got to say yes. So they go, well, I don't know. Not really. Go, we got an ad says he's a liar. Right. <laughs> and that makes you a liar. Um, and, can, you know, that's something the campaigns often forget. You have to be really careful about. You have to be where the candidate is. And candidates tend, for good reason, to be more cautious than that. We just get up every morning. We can do whatever we want. Yeah. And we understand Trump. I mean, all these people who work for Trump, it's not like all of a sudden they woke up and wanted to work in presidential politics, so they got hired by Trump. These are all the crooks and cast house that always wanted to work in presidential politics, but nobody would hire them. Right. Um, I mean, we know all these people. I mean, Jason Milley used to be my intern for crying out loud. I, you know, I wouldn't hire the guy in a million years. Right. Um, so uh, we know how to get under their skin, and we know how to disrupt their processes. And our, look, Trump won with 46.1%. Romney lost with 47.2%. So for Wait, all could, you say, could you say that again? Trump won with 46.1% of the vote. Romney lost with 47.2. That's amazing. Yeah. So for all this industry of Trump voters and this and that, in one way, he won, won for one reason. He ran in a year in which a Republican could win with 46.1%. Yeah. I mean, Romney would have won easily had he won. So, I mean, this is kind of forgotten in this. So why did that happen? It happened for two reasons. Third party increased. Well, that's not going to happen this year. And most importantly, non-white turnout declined for the first time in 20 years. If I was in the Biden campaign, and I, I think about this a lot with doing the Lincoln Project, 
in a lot of ways, this race is just about non-white turnout. Because if non-white turnout goes back to the levels, it doesn't have to be 2012. 2012 was the first time that non-white turnout was greater than white turnout. It could go to 2008 levels. It could go to 2004 levels. Trump's going to lose. I mean, it's 46.1%. Now, most intelligent politicians, human beings, won with 46.1%. The night they won, they would have started trying to put together coalitions. I'm going to be president for everybody whether or not you voted for me. Because ultimately, the one immutable truth of politics is it's about addition, not subtraction. Trump didn't do that. (laughs) You know, he's out there getting mad at people who didn't vote for him. Um, I you can't. I don't think you can think of one instance where he's really tried to persuade anyone who didn't vote for him to join his coalition. He's incapable of it. So, you know, take Asian Americans. Asian Americans used to support uh, uh, Republicans at 70%. Now they're against Republicans at 70%. Now why? It wasn't like Republicans were was out there attacking Asian Americans, at least not until recently when Trump started attacking the Chinese. It's like he had a list. Oh, wait, I forgot to attack them. I've got to get to it. Um, they said they got the joke that if you weren't white, you really weren't welcome in the Republican Party. That's what's happened. I mean, look, look at this whole racial division, race war that Trump is trying to start. So like my home state of Mississippi, right? I'm a seventh generation Mississippian. We finally took down our state flag, which was basically the Confederate battle flag, right? We're the last state to do it, the heart of the Confederacy. It's a very moving moment for a lot of us. And after that week after that, Trump is defending the Confederate flag and attacking NASCAR for banning the Confederate flag. So Trump ends up on the wrong side of a, a, a culture war with NASCAR? I mean, like, holy smokes, man. He's on the wrong side of a culture war over mask with Walmart. And I just think he's really miscalculated here. I mean, if you take your average Mississippi teenage kind of suburban kid, you know, in the basement listening to music, they'd a lot rather be a black rap star than Robert E. Lee. I mean, they just, you know, they're not fighting these cultural wars. I mean, look at what's happening with sports. I mean, Trump, you know, one person takes a knee. I mean, now the whole industry is. Right. You know, what's basically happening is what's happening with with same-sex marriage. We don't even talk about it anymore. It's amazing. In 2008, every presidential candidate, Democrat and Republican, was against it. And and that's, you know, when Trump goes out there and talks about suburban women, I don't know about you, man. I sure don't know any women who live in the suburbs that like to be talked about that way. I mean, most of them have about five different jobs. And, you know, or, or, or you know, keeping ba- basically the universe together. Um you know, at home and keeping their communities together. And, you know, they're, they're sleeping like five hours a night because they're so busy. Um, and he just has this, this antiquated sense of uh, how the world, this sort of 1978 racially divisive Queens world, um, sort of not a bonfire of the vanities. Um, and it's just not, not where the country is. You know, so given um, that he, he won with 46%, that he hasn't added to that, that he's actually attacked people that did vote for him last time, where do you think he ends up? Well, look, it's really hard to be an incumbent president. So here's a little data point to chew on, right? So 1976, after Watergate, we started federal funding for presidential campaigns. And people kind of don't focus on this because, you know, you have a life, which is kind of wish I did. Um, But each candidate nominee got the same amount of money from the federal government. So literally you got, in exchange for that, you don't raise money or uh, you agree not to spend any more money. So it was intended to clean up money after Watergate. But it also had the effect of leveling the playing field. Makes sense. Both candidates get the same amount of money. I mean, literally, when you walk off from getting the nomination, there's someone there from the Treasury Department. They give you a check. It's around $83 million. And we were always like, can you wire this? And they go, no, we do checks. Checks. Okay. So under that system... Carter lost and Bush lost. In 08, Obama blew that system up because they realized they could raise so much money on the Internet. So McCain stayed in the system. Obama spent $735 million uh, total. Uh, McCain spent about $300 million. In the general election, McCain only spent the $83 million. So two, 2012 was the first time both the incumbent and the challenger weren't in the federal funding system were able to raise unlimited money. Obama wins. This is the second time. 
So it's a fair question to ask. When is the last time an incumbent president who wasn't in the federal funding system of equal funding lost? That was Herbert Hoover. And he had a bad year. So it just shows how hard it is to beat an incumbent president, particularly when you're not in the federal funding system. Um, so, you know, you're betting against the House. Now, the House loses. Um, the most vulnerable period for a challenger against an incumbent is right after you get the nomination. I mean, it's just common sense, right? You emerge from the nomination broke. You always are because you have to fight all these other candidates. Usually, if you're facing an incumbent president who hadn't had a primary, they're sitting there just kind of like, you know, loaded for bear. They have lots of money. They pounce on you as soon as you get the nomination, right? I mean, Obama did that to Romney. Obama spent, in June and July, Obama spent more money on television than Bush and Kerry spent together in the whole campaign. Uh, in 2004, we did it to Kerry. Though Kerry got the nomination earlier, if you remember, um, that, that Democratic primary ended pretty quickly uh, after New Hampshire. Um, so the most vulnerable period for Biden was right after he got the nomination. They, you know, May to end of June. What's remarkable here is it's the first time that I know of this has, has ever happened. The challenger went up against the incumbent in their most vulnerable period. Now, a lot of external forces for that, COVID. But, I mean, at the same time, Andrew Cuomo went up due to COVID. Trump didn't have to go down. Um, it was how they bungled it. So, which is to say, you know, the Biden campaign has negotiated their most vulnerable period. Um, I think uh, Senator Harris is a tremendous pick. Uh, if you view the world as, as I do, which is it's all about the non-white vote, I can't tell you how much Senator Harris helps with that, but I really think had you not picked an African-American and passed over picking qualified African-American women, it really would have hurt. Um, so I think they're very together in the Biden campaign. I, I, you know, there's all this stuff. They say, oh, you know, you guys in the Lincoln Project, you make these ads. Democrats could do better. You know, I don't buy that. I think, I think the Biden campaign makes some really good ads. They have a different purpose in their ads than we do. We can kind of have a little more fun. But I think the Biden campaign is very, very seasoned. You know, I, I tell you, having been involved in these things, when you're a front runner and you stumble like they did in the beginning, the pressure to remake your candidacy, it's so huge. I mean, it's like being down 40 to nothing to end of the third quarter of the Super Bowl and you just stick with your game plan. That's hard. And they did it, you know. They decided that they weren't going to do anything. Biden decided, I guess, I'm going to win or lose like who I am. And damn if they didn't win. And that is really, really, really rare in politics. So I, I, I think they're running a really good campaign. I think the Trump campaign is, I mean, Jared Kushner's basically running the Trump campaign. Yeah. But, you know, picking a campaign manager by who your daughter's sleeping with is not the best management theory. Right. Advantage to Biden. I mean, if I had to put a number on it, I'd say Trump has a 20% chance. But then what is it that, it, you know, NBA players miss refros? Something right. like that. Well, and if and, and and if and if that twenty percent chance is realized, you know, I think what a lot of people are concerned with is that you know Trump winning and he can win validates a lot of things that I think every American should be concerned with. I mean, it validates what happened last night. It validates what happened with trying to shake down Ukraine for ele electoral assistance. I mean, it validates just a just a parade of of bad activity that you wouldn't want. Um, in our government. But if he loses, you still have Trumpism. And I'm curious what your thoughts are, you know, with respect to how does, how, how does conservatism rehabilitate itself post-Trump? You know, who, who, who's out there who could be the leaders that might rehabilitate it? Or, and sorry to make this so long, is, is there no rehabilitation? And what we're really looking at is maybe one of those times in American history where there's going to be a realignment of political coalitions. Well, look, it may be still called the Republican Party. It's not going to resemble it. They have to lose. I mean, we've proven that there's no line of, of morality or of good governance that Trump and Republicans could cross that would cause Republicans to rise up against him. I mean, Trump is a traitor. I'm very comfortable calling him a traitor. They know he's being helped by the Russians. That's not enough. 
I mean, I did a lot of things in politics, man, but I never woke up and worked on the same side as the Russians. Right. You know, there's a lot of people that want to pretend like, okay, Trump, he's going to lose. And then we're just going to pretend this didn't happen. Like the Nikki Haley's of the world. But I think what's going to happen is the same thing that happened with African-Americans. So you could have made a case, you know, after African-Americans went from 40% almost supporting Eisenhower to 7% supporting Goldwater in 64. Now, you know, you could have made a logical case. Look, the Civil Rights Act gets passed. That's behind us. Okay. There are other issues that will draw a substantial number of, of African-Americans back to the Republican Party. Cultural conservatism, faith, entrepreneurship, patriotism. But it didn't happen. They never came back. And I think the same thing is going to happen with Hispanics and other non-whites. And it wasn't like Goldwater was out there attacking African-Americans the way Trump's out there attacking Hispanics. I mean, I really don't think you forget he called your your father-in-law a rapist. I don't think so. Um, I don't think there is a future for it. I think it just has to die. And eventually it'll come back. But there's nobody out there that is a figure that can put this together. I mean, Nikki Haley's not going to do it. I mean, she's out there praising Charlie Kirk. <laughs> For heaven's sakes. Here she is. She's, she's UN ambassador, former UN ambassador. She speaks the week after the Senate intelligence report, which establishes as Russians, and she doesn't mention it. I mean, how pathetic. What would Gene Kirkpatrick have done? Yeah. I mean, that, that generation of, of conservatives were of Gene Kirkpatrick and, and of that time, I mean, it seems like just another planet. You know, the figures that were going to be the, the future of the party, right? Remember the famous Time Magazine cover of Marco Rubio, Rubio you know, the Republican saviors. Yeah. Well, I mean, but, you know, someone like Rubio, someone like Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, I mean, they, 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 they've told you who they are. It's one thing to yeah, speak out. Right, it's one thing to speak out against a candidate and say, look, you know, I, I totally disagree with this guy or this woman's. I just, it, it makes no sense the direction they want to take the country on healthcare or defense or whatever the case may be. I disagree. And if later on they've get, they've, they've gotten the win and yeah. the, the voters have, have chosen that person, you can say, look, I don't agree with everything, but I like the framework and I'm going to work with them and I hope they're going to be successful. But if you call someone a pathological liar, if you call someone a kook, and unfit for office. I don't know how you make that turn. That's not disagreeing on ideas. That's saying this person, this is a category of person that should not be in the chair. So I don't know how they make that turn. I mean, I think those people have really shown themselves for who they are. And it's not. Actually, you know, people say, how did Lindsey Graham change? My answer to that is I don't think he changed at all. We just saw who he really was. Yeah. Was, you know, this is who Lindsey Graham is. Wow. Yeah. And I'm a Jamie Harrison donor, his opponent. I hope everybody else donates to Jamie Harrison. And we can beat Lindsey Graham, who's just one of these sad pilot fish of a politician. And I, I tell you what really offends me about it at the, at the deepest level. Right? These are heirs to the greatest generation. I mean, people like my dad, right, who was like 100,000 other guys, you know. Three years in the South Pacific, bad war, 28 island landings. My uncle, his brother. You know, machine gunned in, in Germany, never really recovered. They, they're the ones who came back and built the country and gave this legacy. And courage isn't standing up to Donald Trump. Courage is getting out of the boat and the guy in front of you got shot. And that's what they do. And these Republicans can't even stand up to Donald Trump. They're just a disgrace. So what you have is a group of people that like to look around and they feel better about themselves because they realize that the other person's a coward too. The book is It Was All a Lie. If you have any interest at all in what's happening today, it's a must-read, completely riveting, very well-written. Stuart, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jordan, guys. We appreciate it, Stuart. So, Ed, your thoughts on that conversation just now? I thought it was fascinating. You know, I really... I really enjoyed speaking to him and hearing his point of view on these things. I, I think we were all sort of grappling um, through this era uh, and what it means, what's going to happen. And um, some of what he has to say, you know, is kind of scary. Uh, a lot of it's hopeful, uh, but, you know, getting the perspective of someone who's been so close to the political game and in the arena, um, I, th- I thought was just really fascinating. I, I was really grateful for the opportunity to have that conversation. Yeah, I thought that it actually tied in with what we said at the beginning, which is that you have to know what those core values are and you have to be able to put 
a person or a politician or a candidate through your own core values. And I really appreciated watching him do that in his own life, put the candidate through that process for him and, you know, for him, uh, rejecting Donald Trump was obvious and clear. And from the moment that Donald Trump came out, he didn't try to persuade himself. He didn't go down a rabbit hole. He had the courage to face what was really occurring to a party that he loved. And he's then gone out and done the work to try to uh, reveal who he believes Donald Trump is. Yeah, I, I really admire people who can change their mind. And, you know, if anything, he was a professional persuader. And, we, and it's good to see that he was persuadable. You know, we should all be persuadable, you know, and it, it, it's, it's, it, I really admire it when someone can change their mind, especially when they're working in a field um, that you can kind of lose yourself in the identity of, of, the, of, of winning or losing, you know, and, and party and partisan politics. Yeah, I think all, all too often we all get caught up in this idea that if I change my mind, I'll look weak. And, um, you know, I think that people who change their mind look like they've ad- adapted uh, to new information yeah. and that they've been able to consider new factors. I don't, I don't think that the goal is to see who can outstubborn each other. No, I totally agree. Bias and objectivity are not the same thing. You know, we all have our biases. We all have our experiences in life and the things that influence our thinking. And so these biases are inherent in us, but that shouldn't prevent someone from being able to be objective. Yeah, I agree. Well, again, you're listening to The Head and the Heart. Thanks for listening to today's show. Our show is available on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to the show with uh, new episodes every week. We look forward to having challenging guests and challenging our biases and uh, our ability to be objective. We hope you'll enjoy this journey.